Welcome. This is JHE Ministries Bible Study. I'm Jeffrey, minister and chaplain with JHE Ministries, and I'm glad to have you listening today. In our study of the book of James, we are in chapter 4. We'll finish this chapter, and hopefully we'll get started on chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the fourth chapter of James, verse 10, and let's get started. Verse 10 begins, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge? Another. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. In verse 10, James now returns the next quoted from the Old Testament back in verse 6. God graciously gives aid to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves. Here the specific form of humbling is that of repentance, for the sin of transferring affections from God to the pleasures of the world. However, the principle stated is much more comprehensive in its application. That a God lifts up those who humble themselves is a consistent biblical principle. Now, as we head to verse 11, James will speak fault-finding and did not judge your brother. So in verse 11, James's readers had fallen into the habit of criticizing and speaking evil against one another. Speaking evil is anything that may hurt or injure another person. What we say must be guided by the law of kindness, truth, and justice. James's use of the word brethren or brothers is to stress the point that the believers should not defile or slander another brother or another person. James is saying don't speak any kind of evil against another. If one can't speak well of someone, then it is best to not say anything at all. We must not take the pleasure is making known the faults of others. We must not make up lies about others. This encourages hatred and persecution of another person. It is commanded of Christians that we love one another and that we speak tenderly upon our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because of this command by our Lord, James gives the reason that one should not speak evil of someone because by speaking evil, one is speaking against the law and judges. We're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. To speak against your neighbor is to violate that law. 
Those who do place themselves above the law and by their actions declare that the law to be bad or an unnecessary statute. Rather than submitting to it and keeping it, they pass judgment on its validity and then they set it aside. Now this leads us into verse 12. In passing judgment, this critic of a fellow Christian has taken a position of authority that is reserved for God and God only. God is the one lawgiver, the one judge. Since he gave the law, he's the only one qualified to judge those who are responsible to keep it. That God is able to save and destroy proof that he is in a position to enforce the law, rewarding those who keep it and punishes those who violate it. James gives the question of, who are you to judge? James says this with full force here, with shattering bluntness. James crushes any right his readers may have claimed to sit in judgment over another. This is not to rule out, of course, civil courts and judges, but it does root out the harsh, unkind, critical spirit that continually finds fault with others. In verse 13 is the arrogant self-sufficiency of the world. Now, James will stress that believers should not boast about tomorrow. This section here in verse 13 gives another example of the wisdom that characterizes the world. James addresses businessmen, probably Christians, since in verse 17, which we'll be getting into in a minute in this study, seems to suggest that the readers know that their practice is wrong. Now, James begs them to pay careful attention to the seriousness of what follows. The form of the word say that we find in verse 13 suggests that the situation under the consideration was something that occurred frequently. Business travel back in the first century was very common, and Jews especially traveled wide, widely for business purposes. Now take notice this plane laid here to go to this city or to that city, uh, this plan to go to city to city, spend a year there carrying on business and making money. The starting time is arranged by today or tomorrow. The city has been selected, but God has no place in their plans. It is a worldly plan for them. It's all business. It's all for making money. So now in verse 14, we find that there is no allowance made for unseen circumstances. These businessmen are confident that they'll be able to carry their plans through to completion. Thus, James points out their delusion. They do not even know what will happen tomorrow to say nothing about a year from now. They have been planning as if they know exactly what the future holds for them, and even if, even if they, uh, and they plan it as even if they can control the future. But not only is their knowledge limited, but their lives are uncertain, to the point, uh, to point up the transistory nature of life. James employs another illustration from nature 
that you are a mist or a vapor. In the morning, it covers the countryside, and before noon, it is gone. But some, some of James's readers had been planning as if they were going to be here forever. Now, in verse 15, now instead of saying we will go to the city, the Christian businessman should say, if it is the Lord's will. No, because no Christian can live independently of God. For believers to leave God out of their plans is an arrogant assumption of self-sufficiency. It's a declaration of independence from God. And it truly overlooks reality. Now, whether people recognize it or not, they will live and do this or that only if it is the Lord's will. And the Apostle Paul always based his plans on the will of God. Now, in verse 16, some of James's readers, however, rather than subjecting their plan to God's will, were making it their practice to boast and brag. To make plans without considering God's plan is the same thing as arrogantly claiming to be in full command of the future yourself. The word boast or brag refers to proud confidence in one's own knowledge or their own cleverness, its arrogance. The businessmen addressed by James were proud of their arrogant assumption that they could foresee and control the future. Now, James says that such boasting is evil. It not only lacks the quality of being good, it is aggressively and viciously wicked. Now finally, we have arrived at verse 17. This is the last verse of chapter 4. And although the statement may apply to any number of situations, James intends it to refer to the immediately preceding context. One could simply affix the meaning here of, you have been fully warned, as if James were saying, now I have pointed the matter out to you, you have no excuse. Knowing what should be done obligates a person to do it. Now that finishes up chapter 4. So we're going to start beginning, uh, beginning chapter 5, where we have rich oppressors that will be judged, and we will read about the denunciation of the wicked rich. In the first six verses of chapter 5, James first declares the fact of coming judgment in verse 1 and then lists the crimes against which this judgment will be meted out. Hoarded wealth, which we will see in verses 2 and 3, and then in verse 4 we see unpaid wages. We will see luxury and self-indulgent. In verse 5, the murder of innocent, uh, that was in, that will be in verse 5. And then in verse 6, we'll see the murder of innocent people. There's good reason to believe that the persons referred to in this section are not believers. It might be argued that they are personally addressed in the same way as other groups. Since the letter in general is written to Christians, it might be assumed that the rich of chapter 5 the first six verses are Christians, just as the rich of chapter 1 that we read about, the verses 9 through 11 are. 
However, there are significant differences between chapter 5, the first six verses, and the rest of the letter. These individuals are not addressed as brothers. Furthermore, they're not called on to repent and to change their ways, but only to weep and wail because of the judgment that they're going to undergo. It is therefore more reasonable to understand this section as similar to Old Testament prophetic declarations of coming judgment against pagan nations, which are interspersed among sections addressed to God's people. Now I'll go ahead in chapter 5 and just start reading just a few of the verses for what time we have left here, and then we'll visit about them. So chapter 5, verse 1 Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraught, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now in verse 1, the verse begins a new section. It is indicated by the repeated call for attention. Come now, or some of you may have now listen, depending on which version of the Bible you're reading from. The rich are to weep and howl or wail. While the first word may describe audible weeping, the second term most certainly does. Back in chapter 4, verse 9, James's readers are commanded to make themselves miserable in all-out repentance. But here in chapter, uh, in this verse 1, the rich are told that God will send the miseries of judgment upon them. So here, in verse 2, we see that the first crime charged against the wicked rich is that of hoarding various forms of wealth. In fact, they have so much wealth stored up that it has rotted. They've been corrupted and their clothes have been moth-eaten. Now, keep in mind that wealth in those days consisted both of money and commodities, such as grain and oil and even costly garments. So there's evidence that costly garments were stored as wealth and was even used as payment for services rendered, which occurs in such passages as in 2 Kings chapter 5 and then also in Matthew chapter 6. Thus, what rotted were the commodities and what had been invaded by moths were the stored garments, the clothing. There's no reason to take these happenings as figurative or as predictive of the future. The tragic fact was that the rich had hoarded so much food and clothing that it was going to waste. Their crime was uncontrolled greed, and that resulted in the oppression of the poor. Now, I'm going to end there for today because we are about out of time, but we will pick this up next time and finish chapter 5 of the book of James. So thanks for listening. And until next time, God bless y'all, and keep living Christian strong.